like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at liveonfourlegspod. The song you're listening to is a preview of Rain Comes Down by The Suspect Now. It'll be available on all streaming platforms this coming Friday, June 23rd. You can follow them on Instagram at SuspectDownBand. Those who came before, but what was the path for me? The time I, uh, for a while I was in Chicago growing up, and I remember this bumper sticker it used to say, Escape to Wisconsin. So one day it struck me as really funny when I was standing at a bus stop waiting to get the CTA to get to the Howard's, the Skokie Swift to get to the Howard L to get downtown to State Street. I'm standing at this bus stop and I see this, I think it was a, a Ford Pinto, it's kind of a dark blue Ford Pinto. And uh, I had a bumper sticker that said, Escape from Wisconsin. <laughs> so there was one person who made it. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossip. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast on the last couple weeks we gave you a lot from 2003 kind of going over the 20th anniversary of that wonderful great ride act tour that we speak so highly of and yeah we're breaking it up a little bit i think you guys know what's coming up on the horizon but we need to kind of pivot for a week And go to 1998, where it's actually the 25th anniversary of all those shows on the Yield Tour, which we'll get into more when it comes to August, where a lot of those big ones really came into play. And and we'll get to do the same thing that we did with 2003 with 1998 when it comes time to do that. But we are going to do the Mansfield 3, the experiment, in the next three weeks consecutively. So this one... We decided to go to 1998. We decided to take a Patreon request from our good friend Aaron Redman. And 
that leads us to East Troy the first night of this year. And the band has a lot of history at Alpine Valley. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll hear from Aaron, who's going to have a profile episode for himself over on Patreon. Then we'll hear from some of you guys that answered the question of the week as well, which is, again, playing off of Alpine Valley. Let's do this thing. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. Hey. So, it's kind of crazy. I crunched the numbers and did some hard math on this, and there have been seven shows that Pearl Jam's played at Alpine Valley. This is the sixth one that we've done. The only other one that we haven't done is the night two of this year, which is great, because when we do do it, there's YouTube video of the whole show. So, that's kind of awesome that we'll be able to get that. But we've done everything else. We did PJ20. We did the awesome 2003 show with the Summer Solstice. And we've also done the Ice Bowl. And the other one, I don't think I did this one, but you did this one, was the Lollapalooza show that happened here. Yeah, 1992, the first time they played there, those Lollapalooza shows. I mean, a lot of those shows run together, but being at Alpine Valley, you could tell there there was something special about that one. Yeah, they've all had sort of their own identity in their own special way. Like I said, Ice Bowl, you know, anytime that you give a moniker to a show, it's going to be important. And then PJ20, that's pretty obvious that they would decide to do an anniversary show, two anniversary shows, basically a, a weekend festival there because of how big it is and because it's such a beautiful venue. Also, I think they kind of set it up. We talked about this when we did this episode about the 2003 show where it was on the 21st of June, which is, I think, if you're listening to this episode on the day this comes out, it is summer solstice, the longest day of the year. So I think they had that planned to do that in that venue for that reason. So they like it here. And they've had so many legendary moments and legendary shows here that it's kind of a shame that they don't do something here a little more often. Is it a little surprising that they didn't schedule something there for this year? It is, but it's not. Because if you look at the list of shows that they have, there's not a lot going on. And there hasn't been... Since a little before COVID, I think. One summer, I think they shut down. I don't remember which one that was, but I think they were doing renovations or something like that. But yeah, they don't usually have a lot of shows anymore. And that's kind of strange considering not just the Pearl Jam history, but obviously the the overall history that this venue has. Yeah, it's a little surprising. I mean, going to be in St. Paul and Chicago and feels like that could have been. But yeah, maybe it's just a function of the venue not being ready to bring in something like that again. Crazy things have happened in the state of Wisconsin for Pearl Jam. And what's crazy about this show is that we don't have any video for it. We just kind of have a lot of hearsay. But you're able to kind of gather what happened there. But also, a lot of the reviews that come out about this is like, the band's in a great mood. But you can't tell that from the bootleg, which is really strange. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing we had in Let's where there's not a lot of talking. Like, we got this a little bit from Aaron, too, that in Five Horizons, that there were some technical issues going on. 
but usually on those nights, like you can tell, like it kind of bleeds into the performances and you can tell like there's tends to be some frustration going on, but it sounds like that wasn't the case here. They were just kind of playing loose and letting go with it. But yeah, I, I got that feeling too. Like, again, it's so hard when you just have audio to go on and you've got these, you know, eyewitness accounts saying one thing and then you listen to the bootleg and that kind of tells another story. So yeah, trying to kind of reconcile those things together is going to be interesting. Fortunately for this episode, we do have a retelling of the story, and that's where Aaron Redman comes in, one of our longtime patrons, and more importantly, a really good friend. And he talked about his whole situation and how he got there. He'll talk a little bit about him and his dad going to a show together when he was still in high school. And, well... I don't want to tell his story because I feel like that would be cheapening what he has to say. So I'm going to let him tell it. You're going to enjoy it. Then we'll come back and talk a little more about Alpine Valley. So here is Aaron. I was a few weeks short of my 17th birthday. And, you know, the 10 Club newsletter comes out. There wasn't even a second Alpine Valley show originally. They added that later. So you had your like, little ticket order form. I look back on it. I think tickets for like... $28. That's like surcharge now. On a good day. Not day. even. <laughs> but at the time, I'd only had my driver's license for a little while. You know, I got it when I was like 16 and a half. And my dad's like, you're not driving to the middle of Wisconsin by yourself. So I'm going with you. He didn't really go to a lot of stuff like by the time I got into high school. So I was like, all right, this is different. But we were cool. So like we go to a Pearl Jam show, you know, and it was... I'm young, and I have no idea what to expect, but I was definitely stoked. It was an experience. So what all kind of transpires during the show? What of it being an experience made you want to request this one? Honestly, I think it's like everything kind of around the show that I remember more. If you've never had the chance to get to Alpine Valley, it's an amazing place. Sadly, it's not used to much anymore. There's only like a couple shows there this whole year. It's, It's also an actual ski resort, so it has this massive sign. You turn in, and it, it feels like you're like going back to the 70s or something, because it just feels so old school. You park on grass, and there's people tailgating like it's a SEC football game. Last in Pearl Jam, we get settled, and we, we walk up, and you know we get your 10-club tickets from like a couple people sitting at a table with envelopes. Then we went over to merch, and I got a poster, which is now a very sought-after one. I, at the idea, I just thought it was something to buy. Oh, now it's behind museum glass, push pin holes and all. We took that back to the car so we didn't have to deal with it. And because it was an insanely hot day. Like, that's one thing I will never forget. It was probably only bested by Wrigley 2013 in that regard. So, you know, you're kind of like, oh my God, this is so hot. And, but then it turns the corner really, really fast. Like, when you first walk into that venue, it, it's not impressive at first blush. You're just in this like massive, massive asphalt paved area. That's where they'll set up side stages and all kinds of stuff. And you actually walk up like a 15 foot berm, get to the top of the hill. And then you look down and you're like, okay, I get why this is a ski resort. This is insane. It's so steep. It's so far. And then just keep walking down and down and down and down and down. And I'm like, we're row G. Why are we so close? They've got the venue set up really goofy where there's like three sections, right? There's all the stuff in the center in the pavilion and then all the stuff on the left and all the stuff on the right. So it's like 101, 102, 103. So we're left side. So we're Mike's side. Those very, very front two sections on the left and right are really severely angled. 
So we're like three seats from the farthest left, which kind of nets out to like basically like second row right in front of Mike. And I'm like, I can't believe this. Like, yeah. you know, because back then it's like, you know, you, you read everything in like forums and the news groups and it's like, okay, I know that it's like seniority based and this and that. And I'm insane newbie, right? Like I've been in the club for less than a year. Somehow I'm this far up front, but it's, they obviously didn't take that angling into account when they doled out seats. So, I mean, I remember aspects of the show, but the number one thing I remember from the show was open with Do the Evolution. Just wild. That would have been probably the last song I would ever guess that they were going to open with. I certainly did not appreciate, like, how new Matt Cameron was. Like, I mean, I knew, I knew the news. I knew that it was, but it just wasn't, like, an awareness that I had of, like, oh, this guy had to learn how many songs? No, like it, it's just a testament to like these guys are professional musicians that had as few problems as they did in those shows is like you go back and look and in fact the biggest complaint that we had the whole show was at the time being the complete opposite of being a gear guru i thought it was like reflectivity of audio off of the really severe hill or something like that there was a lot of really really high pitched like ringing feedback you know, really coming off a of mic we were getting dominated by mics overpowering amps right like i could only hear stone when mike wasn't playing on probably half the songs um, there was definitely some issues with sound balancing or maybe just where we were or whatever didn't take away from the enjoyment but it definitely was just something you would notice they were just having a blast so much eye contact from ed so much fun from mike He's doing his little circle runs and stuff. Jeff's bouncing around. The energy of the era was awesome. And for me, I'm a huge Yield fan. I was a huge Yield fan then. Like, getting six Yield songs and four no-code songs, I, I was in heaven. What was kind of your expectation or your level of excitement going into your first show? Was it like you had an idea of what they were? Were you expecting like something on that level? Like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever? Were you kind of going in with an open mind? Like, what were you kind of expecting going into your first show? I had figured out pretty quickly from talking to other friends and stuff like that, that this whole don't play the same thing every night is like really unique. And I've got that like collector addiction DNA in me. You know, I did the baseball card thing and all that other stuff. You don't want to see my craft beer seller. It's, it's a problem. I think that was just it. It was like, okay, like I want to go to another show and then go to another show. And okay, they, they do that tag and they do that song. And just knowing, like, okay, I'm going to see something different, and then I'm going to see something different. Like, that was, I was all in. What were some of the songs that you really wanted to hear? Like, what were some of the early ones that you gravitated towards? At the time, with Yield Being Fresh, I was a huge fan of Brain of Jay. I was a huge fan of Faithful. I was a huge fan of In Hiding. Don't think Given to Fly was resonating with me quite as much. And I, I also don't think it had become the anthem that it's become either, right? I think we could probably all agree it's arguably top three or four song in the catalog from just a pure has-it-all kind of perspective, right? It's like now it's the prototypical Pearl Jam song. I mean, like listening to versions of it from back then, it's like it, it still had a ways to go. But Brain of Jay was on point. Might have been Matt's best song that show outside of a couple of the more classic ones like Ruby Mirror. I was a huge, huge Vitology fan, like particular songs. So I was like, man, if I hear Corduroy, if I hear Whipping, if I hear Satan's Bed. And it's funny because like now I would enjoy those songs more as a bit of a novelty. But obviously Corduroy Live today is better than Satan's Bed today, right? But at the time, you know, like I, I was a huge fan of like Dissident and I was a huge fan of um, Last Exit. So I was a little bummed when Last Exit fell apart, but like 
you know, when you get Ed like laughing and saying, fuck that song. I mean, that's hilarious. They can do that every show and it's, it's just going to kill. Right. So that was great. There got to be a little stretch in there. They had like a stretch of like, like daughter and dissident and better man. Like the better man version was kind of flat in my opinion. Maybe that's just revisionist history because I've been to some amazing sing-along versions and I hadn't developed into that quite yet. Dissident, you know, I thought kind of took like a minute to catch into its own, but that song, when it finally swells, it actually does really well in a venue like Alpine because it really fills the space. There's just certain songs that just kind of get bigger as they go, and that's one of them. Look, look at Corduroy, the Alpine show, 98. It's got such an amazing jam at the end with some awesome like bluesy riffs from mike like that's what i was enjoying at that show and that's truly i've i've gravitated to mike's side ever since you know i've been up close and personal with mike like phoenix 2013 moline 2014 because he's the guy to watch thanks so much aaron for coming on and talking and telling lots of stories and this isn't the only story that he told we recorded a horizon profile episode at forum that will be up on our patreon later this week if not by the time that you're listening to this so if you want to hear more stories about getting puked on at wrigley in 2013 and he'll tell a bunch of really good ones and All I got to do is just head over to Patreon. This is the content that we open up for everybody. This is actually a free episode. So if you want to go and check out the profile, then head on over. We'll be there in a couple days if it's not over there right now. So that's available for you. All right. Now, question of the week this week. Just wanted to know from you guys, like, what was your favorite story or moment that came out of Pearl Jam shows at Alpine Valley. And a lot of you said waiting in that parking lot was not your favorite, but we have a couple of, you know, retellings of what happened in that parking lot. And yes, it is one of the worst things on this planet Earth is getting out of that venue. There's one road and it's by God awful. So I fully get it when you guys say that because I've been there before. But there's some really good ones about PJ20 and the rain and everything like that. So we'll tell a few right here. John, what are you going to kick us off with? Let's start with Bradley Piasecki, friend of the show, says, The show that we're covering was my first ever show. So that show holds a special place in my heart. He says it was my first time seeing a concert altogether, not just Pearl Jam. So just taking in the atmosphere and the general vibes is something I wish I could do again when I'd have a greater appreciation for it. But it's still a very cool night. And he throws in a non-Pearl Jam story, too. says he saw Rage Against the Machine there in 2007 when they got back together. It had rained all day, leaving the lawn seats and the parking lot a muddy mess. Parking situation, like you mentioned, always a cluster there and the mud didn't help. But he says his buddy had a four-wheel drive and they were able to zip around and uh, get out pretty easily. Rain stories there. I mean, feels like it almost always happens or some kind of weather story with frost or whatever you want to say. But yeah, totally get that. I'm going to tell one from Ryan store here says I won't go into a lot of detail, but Alpine Valley in 2003 was my first Pearl Jam show. My dad and my sisters bought me a ticket for my 16th birthday. I'll never forget that adrenaline rush that came from being towards the front of the lawn that night, especially during immortality. I went with my dad, who ended up passing away in 2009, so this show is special to me. 
After the first encore, I went back up the hill to watch the rest of the show with him. He wanted to leave early to try to beat traffic, but we ended up getting lost trying to find his car, so I still got to hear the rest of the show anyways. I think that the walk in the parking lot was the first time I ever saw a streaker. Fun! That's the second week in a row where we've talked about nudity in the question of the week. Very cool. Good stuff, Ryan. And I like the idea of trying to get away from that. So, uh, yeah, you had the right idea, but sorry you got to see what you saw. (laughs) John Hamilton goes back to the Ice Bowl, says, It was not awesome, but it was in a way. There's a bond amongst the folks that were there, and it led to an awesome night in Chicago the following night. And he throws in a bonus to another kind of recurring theme today, I guess, Raging Its Machine at the Tibetan Freedom Festival 1998, as he was blown away over their stage presence and ability to control a crowd. Hey, a lot of Raging Against the Machine love today. Why not? Of course. Got a couple of, like, quick hits right here. This is from Ryan Frank. Seeing a guy passed out before Pearl Jam took the stage in 2003, and after he got up before Yellow Ledbetter... I realized it was my cousin. Well, Pearl Jam shows are always a family affair, but yeah, that that must have been something. That must have been a good laugh for you, Ryan. So that's a lot of drunk stories. Here's another drunk story. Mark Schaff says, gotta be the drunk guy rushing the stage in 2003 during Crazy Mary and Ed letting him sing and then dancing with him. Yeah, that was a fun moment. I think he like commented about that being Carrie Wood that came on stage, which when you're listening to the boot, there's no video for that. So you're like, Oh, did Carrie Wood really do? But no, it was literally some drunk guy got on stage. It feels like back then you can get away with it a little more. You'd be buried to a pulp if you did that now. So good for him. Got one more here from Mike Radke. who says my first concert at Alpine was Pearl Jam night one of 1998. Hey, 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 with Frank Black and the Catholics opening. I hadn't known he was Black Francis from the Pixies at that time, so unraveling that thread was interesting to expand my playlist. Took forever to get out of the venue, but that wasn't unexpected. But then he says, there were women using the men's room sinks to um do their business. So that's a that on this that we did not cover listening to the bootleg. That's some of the atmosphere I did not get from just listening to this. <laughs> well, you never know unless you lived it, right? Yeah, and that's that's a pretty common thing because the men's bathrooms are always quicker than the women's bathrooms. So if there's a mess like that, I'm never going to put it past them to go do that. So maybe not in a sink, but, you know, a stall is fine. I'm going to read one from Brian Frost. This is from Lollapalooza 1992. I was 17 and my parents wouldn't allow me to go to a concert at Alpine Valley because, quote unquote, it wasn't a place for teenagers. I really wanted to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers, so I snuck out and bought a ticket anyway. Pearl Jam played their set earlier in the afternoon, and they killed it. Decided to head home after that, as there was no way it was going to get any better. 30 years later, still have never seen the Chili Peppers, and have never missed a Pearl Jam show at Alpine Valley. Wow! You made made the right choice. They must have gone on, what, at like 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon? And you just... After that, you're like, I'm sold. I don't need to see Chili Peppers or Ministry or Ice Cube or anybody. Like, I don't think anybody else would have thought that. That's, yeah, that's some kind of story. That was the right call. Good job. In hindsight? In hindsight. (laughs) But when you're there, you're like, shit, I'm supposed to be seeing nine bands today. And plus, he had to sneak out. Like, he was able to get back in the afternoon and no one was the wiser. Oh, yeah. 
Well done. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, he probably got out of the parking lot easier, too. Two other quick ones I'll mention real quick. Another one with a parking lot and another one with nudity. Steve Travis says PJ29 one being the very last car out of the parking lot and sharing brats with the security team as we post-concert grilled out and sobered up. So, hey, make the best of it when you're in a shit situation. That sounds good. Yeah, you're not and going then, anywhere for a while anyway. No. And then Degrassi Knowles says watching a dude get dragged out of the pit by security with his pants around his ankles at PJ20 night two takes the cake. He can have that cake and eat it too. All right. Well, let's get into this show. And what's interesting, we're going to kick it off here with a song that we've talked about as the opener two other times this year, even though it's only been opened with 11 times. Well, it's of the era, so you would totally get why they would open with it in 1998. But Do the Evolution is going to kick your show off. just starts with one of his classic howls and it's off to the races and this is Matt Cameron's sixth show and he's still very early on getting adjusted and learning the songs and figuring out what his place within Pearl Jam is and at that point nothing was permanent he was just kind of filling in until everybody figured it out and obviously we all know the history and we're very happy with what happened but I thought that Cameron sounded terrific on this. And in hindsight, it's just such a harder edge than the song usually had. And when you're listening to the solo, when you're listening to, I believe, the first solo, you just hear him pounding away on that. And I don't know how often you kind of get the drum presence while Stone is going off during that, because usually it kind of lays off just a little bit. But he kind of brought it on that and and as you hear in a couple of these really early songs Matt will go heavy very very early on yeah I mean Jack was always throwing in more dynamics and Matt just didn't have time to do that at this point it was like let's pick the 40 or 50 songs and you know a lot of these quote unquote the rockers are going to be the easier ones where he can just do his thing and not have to worry about pulling back and causing the song to go off the rails if, if he messes up or goes pulls off before the time's right or anything it's, it's just easier to get through yeah cameron's i mean i'm gonna talk about him a couple of times early on here but for do the evolution you could tell you could really hear the crowd during the bridge and look at it like 
35,000 people in this venue compared to what they were doing at the time. That's huge. I think Ed's going to mention that after Brain of J too, but you really got the sense of there's a lot of people here and they're into it early on. I mean, do the evolution's a great way to get the crowd going right from the beginning. Yup, and right from the start too, it's very intense. Ed is out there shredding his vocals, a lot of ferocity that you get from 1998. That's an A-plus version for me. Animal, last exit, Brana J. I thought the momentum going into Animal was red hot. Another hard-hitting version. And it's all Cameron, and it's all Ed, and they make a version of Animal feel like how it's supposed to feel. The one thing you can say is, like, Mike is cutting out a little bit in some of these songs very early on, but... I thought Animal sounded really good. Last Exit was kind of the one that was the weird one. So do you have anything on Animal or or should we just go to Last Um, Exit? Yeah, on Animal, for fans of pacing, I thought Animal was paced very well, not played too fast. It had that kind of like 1993, 1994 kind of stomp to it. And I think that's, again, due to Cameron being new. But you hear Cameron kind of go off at the end and you're like, okay, this is weird. Like I'm hearing the drums featured here, which is something you don't normally get. And then you think like, oh, there's normally a ripping McCready solo over this and there's not. And I think it's some of the technical issues were rearing their head early on. So this is missing something like, you know, you build up to that part of Animal where Mike comes in, he comes in over the first and just rips it till the very end and you don't get that here, which is a little strange. Yeah, and that kind of transfers over into Last Exit, and it's not the main issue that is going to be in the forefront, but you can clearly tell that Mike is not apparent in the mix in the first half of Last Exit. And you can even hear Ed say right before going into the solo, you can hear him say, there he is, like, you know, you haven't heard him all song. And I don't know if that throws Ed off at all, but he's thrown off. So it's not Mike's fault. This is all on Ed because going back into the last bit of the song, all you need is like another 30, 45 seconds to finish off yeah, with who this like, is. They this were two is. Into it. it wasn't much left. Right. Yeah, he just unravels. The band just sort of says, okay, well, you're done. We're going to figure out how to end this. And it just is barely salvaged in that way. Cameron's the one who tries to keep it going the longest because he doesn't the be in the quote unquote, the new guy. He doesn't want to be the one to give up. So yeah. as everyone's kind of like trying to get it back and then giving up, you, I think you hear Jeff at one point just says, all right, fuck it just stops playing but cameron's the the last one you hear like oh come on we can pull it back on but they end up just giving up yeah not the gold standard versions of last exit and as ed would say fuck that song on to the next one 
And it really meant that they had to kind of go twice as hard on Brandon J. And they did bring it on this. It seems like Ed does botch a little bit of the melody before the bridge and almost kind of sings it almost like how he sings like the, the last chorus. And it seems like he got tossed up on that a little bit. I think that's just adrenaline flowing. If I were to make a guess at that. And I think distraction too. I think when you've got issues on stage with technical things, it can't help but throw you off. And when you're going off of memorization, like, yeah, it's easy to get mixed up like second verse, third verse, because he's thinking about other things. He's not fully focused on singing. He's got other things in his head that are taking up that spot. And that's going to mess you up every time. Right. His mic is peaking a lot very, very early on. So while Mike is having his issues, he's having his own issues himself. But let's not bag the song or anything like that. This is a grinder of a version. It feels like the band is playing up to the tone that Cameron is setting, him taking it away, and then Stone, very, very crunchy solo from him on this. I thought that this was a real hard-hitting version of Brandon J. Yeah, I mean, one of the highlights of the time, I mean, the first song on the new record, you're getting with one of the first Cameron shows. I mean, this is one I'm sure he worked on a lot and wanted to nail. Ed says, thanks a lot. There's a whole lot of you too, Jesus Christ. Thanks to each and every one of you. Here's Mike McCready. We're going to go give it a fly into In Hiding here. A little bit of a, a yield section with the three of those. What'd you think about either of these versions? I thought that In Hiding was interesting because it was the only the ninth time of it being played. So it was rusty in spots, but when the chorus hit, like you could feel the power and the song like really takes off during the choruses. It is a really tough song to get in sync, especially the guitars. It's kind of the same way that Faithful is, where the guitars need to be in conjunction. And it had a little trouble, but they seemed to really find it when they were getting the climactic moments in those choruses. Yeah, to me, it just felt too loose. It felt like kind of a rehearsal version. You hear Ed throw in like a fucking in there at some point, so... Maybe some of that frustration was starting to bleed out a little bit, but I didn't think this was a great in hiding, just too haphazard, too loose. Forgiven to Fly, I mean, again, one that isn't going to be the highlight of there, one that they really pushed and played every single night. Cameron, I thought, really nailed the ending and got it to a really nice place. All right, the next duo is going to be Corduroy and Wishlist. And I got a little bit about Corduroy here. So if you guys tuned in last week, This felt like it was me sort of like questioning the performance of the song and how we usually hear it. And what I brought up was that in the bridge, in that version from last week in Bonner Springs, they don't go back into the intro to then segue into the big climactic solo. They don't do that in that version. I thought like, hmm, Was that something that they implemented at a different time? Like, I think it was just the fact that I was so surprised not hearing that. I'm like, maybe it was just kind of due to the error or something. But no, it's clearly not. I listened to some earlier versions. I listened to some versions from today in between, and and it's there. That was just an anomaly. So I just wanted to bring that up to let everybody know that, yeah, that was a one-off kind of thing. And if it does happen again, we'll bring it up. But... There's a great surge happening in Corduroy here. Like the crowd really gives this a huge boost. You can tell that there are 35,000 people there. And Ed has to actually change his vocal direction 
on the Everything Has Chains part, and that has a really kind of unique vibe. We've heard that before. Maybe is that part of what he did on the Bridge School version that he sang it like that? I'm not remembering correctly, but it did sound different. It did sound unique to that, but this was a, a pretty huge version of Corduroy that really found its, its steam during the solo as well. See, I, I think you had Mike with some problems again. I think that held it back a little bit. It didn't feel as epic and big to me as it probably should have been. And, and Cameron was doing his best to hold it together. But there were some parts, too, where you could tell that Mike wasn't at his best. He wasn't getting everything he wanted to get out of what he was doing. It's interesting. Yeah, no, I thought, especially the build to segue into the solo, I thought the build was terrific for this. And I didn't catch anything wrong from Mike at all. And, you know, Coro is just one of those songs, again, that you hear so many times and you just kind of know it for what it is. And if you hear something different, you kind of point it out like it did with the, the lyrics there. But yeah, I didn't hear anything off from Mike on this at all. But that's, I'm not doubting it at all because of what happened earlier on. It, it, it does seem to fix itself at some point, but... Yeah, they, yeah. they eventually get it worked out, at, at least to a, to a point where they can like get through the songs. Mm-hmm. Normal Wishlist version, 1998 versions of Wishlist are usually very good, but as always, I love that little bounce back at the end with the Ebo and then that one drum hit to come back into the song and do another refrain of it. Like That's always very, very good. Lucan into Even Flow. I think he nailed all the lyrics to Lucan. Am I right? Was there a botch? I don't remember. And again, botch. I don't think it was with Cameron being so new. They weren't playing it super, you know, like speed level. Right. So he was able to kind of, you know, I didn't time this one out, but it's probably over a minute, probably close yeah. to what the album version was. So yeah, I think it was 55. Okay. So yeah, it makes sense. He, he doesn't have to just spit fire at the words and run things together. Isn't it crazy? He misses lyrics in the last exit, which he doesn't usually miss, but nails Lucan. Yeah, yeah. Not very often that happens, you guys, but this is the anomaly show, right? We're going to get to Javier on even flow here. He wants to talk about the sound coming from Mike's guitar and how clean it was sounding. And that's kind of different when you're hearing even flow from Mike. What did you hear in this performance from what Mike was doing? I thought it was not a long solo at all, but it had a very interesting sound. To me, it felt really kind of spastic and kind of disjointed. And I don't mean that that doesn't have to be a negative thing. He can turn that into something really cool and really epic. But yeah, it didn't feel like a fluid, melodic kind of thing. It felt like he was being a little more jagged and a little more spastic. Well, the crowd absolutely loved this. If you hear after the song, the crowd is going ballistic on this, which it's even flow. So there's no surprises there. But again, 35,000 people, that's going to happen. But let's head on over to the Gear Guru, who's going to talk about this sound, the clean sound from Mike's guitar on it. Yeah. 
Hey Randy, hey John, hey everyone on the podcast. Uh, this week we are covering East Troy 1998. Shout out to Aaron for picking up the show. Can't wait to see Aaron on the Lego the Tour this fall. The approach and the tone for this tour in 98 was a little different. I think it sounds cleaner, if you ask me. But if I look back, and also we started kind of like dig around in between all the equipment that they were using at that point, it makes sense to me that they were sounding a little cleaner. For example, Stone was using matchless caps, meaning just like the EQ is integrated with your amp. He was using two of them. And Mike was running Ampeg amps with an orange cap and with a Marshall cap, which is something that you didn't see in previous years or you haven't seen now, basically. He just runs different stuff. The tone is super different. I think even flow in this tour is a little bit more groovy. Clearly, you can hear that this tone is taking the lead on this one. His guitar is way much more driven in front. Classic Les Paul tone in front of all the mix. But Mike is just using like strats. They sound super clean. Like He tends to play the song with the neck pickup, which he does till this day, but it's less common now. It's more like a rock song, more like a driven, more tuba screamer kind of sound. But yeah, I think it adds a lot of different texture to it. I really like this version. I think it's just funky, groovy. It's something that is more, I don't want to say more enjoyable to hear because it's not the case, but it's something that it makes you go back maybe a little bit more and just to listen to whatever like from 98 you can find. It's a different take. The solos are always like driven by wah pedals into a screamer as we know as of now but the overall tone is different it sounds fresher to me even though that is kind of weird because we have to go back to 98 to listen to this but i thought it would be a good talking point because it's something that we are not very used to it nowadays all right that's only one we'll bring him back two more times in this episode but very once cool. again very- he's good at what he does guys ed says i think i have a brother out there I haven't seen him yet today, but I just want to tell him that I love him. Not to be too embarrassing. And it sounded like he said his name, but I didn't recognize what he said. It's Chris. He said Chris? Okay. it's I don't know why. It didn't sound like Chris at all, but okay. That makes a lot of sense, and we obviously know Chris from stories and recent stuff. So, Yeah. yeah. The next section is going to be Daughter, Dissident, and Mini Fast Car, a.k.a. MFC. The tag on Daughter here is a split-end song called Stuff and Nonsense, which is a phrase I use every other day, maybe. It's kind of my go-to when people's like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, eh, stuff, nonsense. And that's kind of all because of this tag and hearing this tag before. And I thought that that was a very randy thing to, to say, so I use it almost every day now.
didn't really do this a whole lot. They did it in 1995, especially when they were down in New Zealand for obvious reasons. And that was the last time they did it before bringing it back right here. What'd you think of this tag? Uh, yeah, I like it a lot. It fits in a lot to the theme of the whole thing about like, I don't know about the future, the line, and then kind of turning it on its head and being like, oh, it's all just stuff and nonsense. Like that's a very kind of Ed take on philosophy and life, I think. So I'm not surprised that he kind of latched onto that. Yeah, I think they only did it one other time after this. I love their connection to those like New Zealand and Australian bands like the Hunters and Collectors, Throw Your Arms Around Me, Split Ends, I Got You, all the Neil and Tim Finn, Crowded House. So yeah, this is part of that. It's very, very cool. And 1998 is one of the years for the really, really weird tags that you almost never get again on Daughter. So yeah, yeah it's very cool stuff. Are you more of a stuff or a nonsense guy? Oh, nonsense for sure. Okay. I think I have to have both. You kind of can't have one without the other because stuff leads to nonsense. But anyway, not too much to add on Dissident. There's not too much for MFC that I got either, but MFC beforehand, it feels like they're kind of strumming some like drop D chords that almost sounded metal-ish. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah, very, yeah, some kind of like metal riff in between. It was weird. I wasn't sure what was going on there. Yeah, good version. It pops out, and we do get some very intense gnaws out of Ed, so that's always worth a mention when we talk about it. All right, on Better Man, the next one here, you get some good crowd participation here. And as we kind of mentioned last week, like 2003 was really the time where Ed started throwing it to the crowd so they can sing the first verse and chorus. And he wasn't doing that for them here, but this is maybe a very early sign that the crowd was ready for a moment like this. We've gone back to it so many times with this many people in the crowd, you know, a song like this is gonna hit and and connect in a really special way. And yeah, you could hear him early on. And I like to like, think of like 1998, this is like pretty much five years after the song has been played still less than 100 times you know for all the shows they did in 94 95 96 this still hadn't broke through yet i thought this was a good version you know one of this main set hasn't had a lot of like really big highlights and i think that better man was one i think you hear ed goes falsetto at 1.2 which shows you he's kind of having fun like with like some of the fan views have mentioned he's just having fun and playing around with things this version surges when Matt has this fill that segues into the more electric part of the song and it just takes away from there. Like that one fill makes the whole entire song for me.
Ed says, you just write a song sitting on your bed and you never think of what happened. People singing it. It's appreciated. Another thing that's significant is that Mike grew up listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan and this place is the place that he played last. So play this one with that in mind, okay, Mike? We get into Red Mosquito, a very electric and vibrant version of Red Mosquito here. It's no shocker. We've heard this a bunch of times, and this is one that Mike can go off on. And it is good after the early hiccups that Mike is getting something like this and getting to show off. And even Flo Wall was a very clean solo, wasn't one of his masterpiece solos at all. So getting Red Mosquito feels like you're getting a big moment for Mike. Yeah, and I think Leatherman was originally on the set list right here. It was, which is notable because the night before was the South Dakota show where they would do the trilogy for the first time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this Red Mosquito, I mean, it makes sense that they would scratch that and, like, you can't talk about Steve Ray Vaughn and then go into Leatherman. <laughs> so you need him to something he can latch on to. But it still felt like there were some points where there was some feedback or there was still some glitch stuff going on, but doesn't affect the performance just little things that you hear like oh that's not supposed to be so they still hadn't gotten quite figured out i think this probably held together by scotch tape and doing gum at this point but pretty good version you know gives them a chance to be explosive which he didn't really get a chance to let loose on even flow or animal early on so needed a moment like this and gonna follow up with something really good too yeah and it's interesting to note that this is actually cameron's first performance of the song and there'll be one other song a little bit later another no code song that'll be his first performance on too and it does feel like they have a really good chemistry on it for all of it being you know wrapped in scotch tape and all that and yeah it did have some technical flaws to it but i thought that the band at least had a lot of chemistry and it kind of led for mike to get his platform and do his thing so it looks like they had sound checked it a few times in the days before too so they've been working on it that makes a lot of sense yeah there's another song from no code that they sound checked at this show which will come into play a little bit later with a little blink if you miss it reference so i'll bring that up when it comes time but we're ending the main set with black it's the rare era where it sort of happened from time to time in 98, 2000, and really after that, probably not too often, maybe in some of those sort of mid-territory shows in, in 2003, but it really is kind of a 98, 2000 thing. And just like Better Man, the crowd is very audible in this. From there, like it's black in all the ways that you love it, but the end just turns this loose and... It's intense, and Ed's going off, belting out the We Belong Together tag. Mike and Matt are scorching this, and it then, as good versions of Black do, it has that pensive ending of just sort of the finality of all that and and saying goodbye, but this got very intense, and, and maybe one of the more intense versions of We Belong Together outside of the Unplugged.
love black as a main set ender. I think that's very, very cool and should probably happen more. But yeah, the We Belong Together here is the highlight. I think this performance is the highlight of the show for me. It felt like Mike really finally got a chance to be unleashed and let loose in a way that he had been not able to during the whole show. It felt like, yeah, just completely like release and catharsis at the end where he's just like going off and letting loose. So this is this is the number one for me from this show. Well, that spoils things for the ending. John, you're a spoiler. You're not nonsense. You're a spoiler. That's what you are. We've been on, we've been on a really good black run. I think I talked about it, you know, last week and the week before too. I'm in a, in a really good spot with that one right now. Probably one of the ones I'm looking forward most to to hearing every week. Yeah. Black and river mirror seem to anytime that they're in a show together, it seems to just work out really, really well. So Yeah. yeah. I get you. I feel you on that. That's been a pretty positive experience. And really with black and rear mirror, it's, it's almost not, not going to be that. So we're just lucky either way. Let's just put it that way. All right. We're actually at the encore. So let's pause for station identification right here. And we do have some things to talk about. Why don't we start first with thanking a bunch of people this week, some brand new patrons. I'm going to kick off with two patrons that joined and they started off by doing the free trial for, for seven days. And now they are officially patrons. So let's thank both Ryan Bauer and Matt Satterfield to join in Patreon. So very awesome. You guys, thank you so much for doing that. And I'd also like to thank these two together right here because they have won the giveaway and the giveaway is finally over. So big shout out to Kelly Ludwig and Carolyn Roberts who have both signed up to the bonus leg for a year. That means they're getting t-shirts guys. So congratulations you two. And yeah, very, very cool. And I hope you guys enjoy the shirt and especially Kelly. I tried to get in touch with you, but if you're listening, then reach out because I think Patreon gave me a wrong email for you. So reach out and we'll make sure we get the shirt to you next week or something like that. So one more thank you to a brand new Gigalek member, and that is Brandon Rose, somebody that's been messaging me a little bit and, and talking on Twitter all the time. And I don't know if you remember, but a couple months ago, maybe even weeks ago, we read a quote from him that was that was really, really nice and kind of talking about his connection to the show and how much yeah. he appreciates it. So, hey, we appreciate you just as much. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Let's talk about shirts before we really talk more about Patreon, because we did a nice week with the shirts. And right now we're at 51 sold, which is halfway to our goal, which is 100. So there's still a couple weeks left that you can get the shirt. The shirt will be on sale until July 9th. So there is still time. And I know a lot of people that were planning on buying it right before the deadline. But very very cool and thank you guys for all the support we really really appreciate that and the way that you can get it if you are listening right now and aren't following on our social medias you'll want to go to live on four legs.com slash 2023 tour or if you even go to live on four legs.com and, and forget to put it in the back end of that it'll be right on our homepage. You'll see it right on the slider. So just click that. It'll take you to the page. It'll ask for your size and all that stuff. So we really appreciate all the support on that. And, you know, just another week, we're just 
keep chopping away and see if we can keep raising some more money. So thank you all for doing that. Now let's talk about Mansfield because next week is the trilogy beginning and we've gotten a lot of really good stories so far, but what's a couple more? Nothing wrong with that at all. So this is probably your last call for that. So if let's say by like this weekend to early next week, if you haven't gotten the story in, if you went to those shows, one of those shows, all three of those shows, two of those shows, whatever it is, and you have a story that you want to share about finding out about what they were doing or finding out about the acoustic set, missing the acoustic set, anything performance wise that really stood out to you from these shows, then another thing to go on live before legs.com and you can do that live before legs.com slash Mansfield and fill out a story type of a story. And what we're going to do starting next week is we are going to read those stories on the first two episodes and when we do the first night and the second night of Mansfield. So we'll read as much as we can. And yeah, we just want to get as much in there as, as humanly possible. So thank you for everybody that has contributed a story so far. And if you haven't yet, we would love to love to hear from you. But now this is the deadline. This is the last call for that. So hopefully you guys will be on top of that train. What else we got to talk about? All right, here, why don't we talk about Patreon? Right now is a very busy time for John and I, so the extra content that comes from Patreon slowing down a little bit. I have a ton of bonus content that I can put out there that will be out there at some point in the future. There's going to be the Horizon Profile episode with Aaron. And yeah, it might not be until like mid-July that we get another late night series episode or something like that, but it's coming. We're thinking about it. We're never not thinking about it, but this is a very busy time of year. It's almost a holiday weekend with the 4th of July and everything like that. And, you know, my kid was born on the 2nd, so there's big birthday party and, and traveling and all that. So if you do want to join the Patreon, you have a couple options here. So what you can do as two of our new patrons did this week is you could try the free trial and you can join up on the free trial for seven days and that's under the bonus leg tier. So when you go to patreon.com slash live on four legs and you select the bonus leg tier, you'll see that there is a free trial available. You join up to that and then if you don't cancel from that point on, it's only a dollar a month. So you're under the bonus leg tier. If you want more, you're going to get more. So what's more than that? Yeah. If you want to join, if you want to join on the bonus leg tier, that's a dollar a month. If you want to join the gig leg tier, that's $5 a month. If you want to join the horizon leg tier, $10 a month, you're able to do all that. And every tier will give you something a little bit different. The gig leg and the horizon leg tier will get you an episode request. So if you got an episode request, Send it on in, and we will make sure that we get to it as soon as possible. We got a lot of stuff to get to, but you'll be on our list. You'll be in the queue. So that's patreon.com slash live on four legs. Go to the Patreon app, search for live on four legs, or go to live on four legs.com. Gonna plug that once more and click the become patron button. And boom, there you go. All right. Well, back to the rock. Stone actually here is thanking the crowd and also thanks Frank Black for playing tonight. Definitely one of our heroes. Having him on stage is our honor. And that will bust us into hell hell. 
Ed, again, kind of like the beginning with Do the Evolution. They get a little rest, and Ed shot out of a cannon right away with this. Switching up the lyrics to, is there room for all of us? And that intensity that you're getting very, very early on is back. And the band has a really, really good drive on this. Yeah, it felt like coming off of the main set ending with Black, which kind of felt like they finally got what they wanted. Like everyone was finally performing at like full capacity. It felt like they wanted to get back in the encore and just get right back out and rip right into another thing. It just had a lot of energy. I think coming off of the ending of the main set and it's just a classic version. I think there's a thing with Cameron too. Cameron does a really simple kind of roll fill that you can tell like he doesn't do anymore because like now he's more nuanced and knows the song front to back and can do different things but it's a really simple just oh it's just perfect for the song. I thought it really added a lot even though it was simple sometimes those are the best things and yeah I really enjoyed this version of Hell Hell another one that's, that's going to end up probably being a highlight. when they took it down for the are you woman enough to be my man part like they take it down a little bit and then they build it right back up to finish off really strong i thought that was a really nice way to do it and then what you get at the end here is a little bit of an extension which is very cool it kind of feels like they're trying to mirror the album fade out that they do on this song and a lot of other songs that is implemented with post-game production and everything like that i thought that that was a cool touch i know that they've done something like that on hail hail before but i thought that that was pretty cool for this version all right it's stone's turn i did my very best to rip off frank black so you guys will maybe pay attention this had never occurred to me that Mankind is kind of a Pixies ripoff song, but it kind of is. Yeah, never even crossed my mind, but okay. I feel you. That makes sense. This is another one, the other one, I should say, that Matt is playing for the first time. And without having any responsibilities on this, it does seem like Ed is having a really, really good time. In some of the reports that you'll see, Ed is dancing around the stage and he's playing with tambourines and stuff like that. And it just felt like they had a ton of fun with this version. They had good chemistry on it and Stone felt so good about it that he even jokes at the end. He says, I'll sing another if you want me to. So, yeah, good stuff with Mankind. Yeah, maybe this would have been the debut of Don't Give Me No Lip. They had it from No Code. Maybe he was thinking, let's do Don't Give Me No Lip. But, uh... It did feel like Ed was singing along at the end. You kind of hear his voice come in near the end, and it felt like he was up there singing along. 
I mean, he could have took the song off if he wanted to, but he's a pro's pro. He's got to warm up for the next couple that they got before the end of the set. Ed is, during this little part, during the break, he is tossing tambourines to the crowd, and I believe that the story here is that one of the tambourines broke, and he was tossing it into the crowd, and he should suggest to give it to a girl in the front, but then he decides otherwise. He's like, no, I'm just going to get you another one. I have a bunch of them. So apparently this girl got two tambourines, one broken one and one not broken. So interesting. Yeah, it's probably something like people were fighting over it. And nowadays, you know, people are more like low-key about that. Like, oh, help people out. Like people know the kind of etiquette of it. But back in 1998, it was a little more feverish and a little more like if you throw something on the crowd, you were going to get it. You were going to get a rush and just people are going to be going for it no matter what. Neanderthals. That's yeah. all it was. Well, he's going to talk about Neil Young before getting into I Got Shit, which is not uncommon at all. He says, once upon a time, we did a record with Neil. He usually does all the singing and all the writing, and he had 11 or 12 ready for the record. Then we had a single that was two songs. So that shows that in six days, Neil could write 12 songs, and we could write two in the same amount of time. Do you think that they can write 12 songs in six days now? No. I agree, because they would have about eight albums in the span of 2006 and now if they had that ability to. That's another thing, and like this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but I think they're a little bit too precious with the studio material now. It's almost like, just go bang it out, dude. Like Everything doesn't have to be eight pages of lyrics and three parts, and like I'm waiting for that Back to Basics record. Yeah. Record. I would like to actually see that first off, but I think that the comments of, of the earth is that Ed never got it to where he wanted it to be. Like if it's a fucking good song, go with it and it kills live. So just take the influence from there and just put it out there. Like, I don't know. It's just weird. Like everything has to be perfect on there. And if, like, just do it. Everyone's going to like it anyway. It doesn't, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't like know. You see, you see, like, Smashing Pumpkins put out a triple album this year, put out a double album a couple of years ago. You see, you know, all these other bands, like, still just putting out records, putting out records. And, like, Pearl Jam, I think they're a little too precious and a little too, like, no, it's not ready. No, we're going to make sure we're going to spend some extra time with it. It's like, I wish they were more just, like, just throw it out and just, just do it. Just go. Just don't overthink it. And apparently they can't even decide whether they're in yeah, ready yeah, or not. Stone thinks they are. Jeff doesn't yeah. think so. I really think they're just fucking with all of us guys. But again, That's, you could read into that that like maybe things aren't going great if one person thinks that it's done and one, one person thinks that it's not. So Stone likes Andrew Watt and Jeff doesn't like Andrew Watt? Hmm. I'm not throwing that on the fire. But I get that. All right. I got shit. Enjoyed the performance, had a lot of pop to it. Vocals were very good in this. And there is a Cinnamon Girl tag. But when I saw the Cinnamon Girl tag on this in Toronto of last year, it felt like you got that chord introduction. It felt like they actually went into the song. But here it's just 
right at the end, Ed starts singing Cinnamon Girl, and they continue to play I Got Shit, even though the songs are neck and neck very similar. times when he'll do it he'll do the na, 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 like he'll go into the melody of yeah, it na, 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 right but this one it felt like almost an afterthought like he got to the end and was like oh i talked about neil i should do that and then just threw it on at the very very end but yeah his vocals are super gravelly on this another one that i thought cameron was just pounding the shit out of yeah good good performance here a really good start to this encore overall yeah, and it's not going to stop there because River Mirror is coming next. And as we kind of mentioned during Black, like River Mirror has been getting better and better each week. And this is very, very good for a 1998 show. Now I'm going to bring up what I brought up much earlier is that I don't know if you caught it, but Ed tries a little bit of that different inflection in one of the verses. And that's the Frogs version. And if you all know about the Frogs, they are from Wisconsin. Milwaukee, to be precise, I believe. So the following night, they closed the show with Smile, which, as I mentioned before, was soundchecked at this show. And I believe Dennis joined him on the song, or Dennis was side stage on the song or something like that. So it all ties in together. It's all a very, very nice moment. But... What'd you think of this? Because I thought it had a very interesting vibe during the bridge and everything like that. And we'll get to Javier's take on it in a second. But this is fairly like light and open and airy. It felt like there was a small crowd issue. I think at one point calls out someone in the crowd like, hey, mister, calm down. So there was a little bit of a crowd issue. And I think that led to it being more of a calmer kind of bridge. Like it's not one of those like really pulsating really pounding you know super intense rearview mirror bridges this one is a little more sedate a little more nice i think that's probably why they were dealing with a little bit of an unruly crowd here and something that i caught here too is that especially from jeff but it it felt like kind of the whole thing sounded like it had that rotosphere sound that we've talked about with javier before which is what i'm segueing into right now but especially from jeff it sounded like it was very sort of underwater and kind of like reverby a little bit, which is not usually where the bass build up to River Mirror leads to. So we asked the man himself what he's using on this, because when I brought that up, he's like, I ah, Jeff has never used a rotosphere before, so I gotta figure out what he used. And well, let's find out the answer. Jeff's main base around that point, it was the Modulus VJ4, which is kind of a rare weird base, not very well known, but for the description, it has a lot of punch to it. Personally, I've never tried or never played one of those in my life, but for what I could find, it seems like it will fit the kind of idea that they were trying to run in 1998. Overall, the tone for this tour was cleaner than usual. It's not very driven. I think it has a lot to do with the amp selection that they were taking at that point and all that. So 
Actually, I think this is one of the first times that I hear a very noticeable effect over a song performed by Jeff, which is RVM on this show. You can really hear this Dunlop Tremolo ST1 stereo pan, which what's going to do is is going to be running the tremolo side to side over the amp set. So you're going to go left, right, left, right, which creates a pretty cool stereo effect based on this. ladies and gentlemen take two for the gear guru works out really well it always does and we'll hear him at the end of the show other like little things about this big ending it has a massive scream in this and it seems like that's less of his kind of scream and it feels more like a kind of a new metal band scream i thought considering that this is where new metal was sort of blossoming and, and becoming what it became in the early 2000s, late 90s. A little bit of that corn influence. Yeah, just not something that you hear every day from him. But yeah. it does sense that he's feeling pretty good. Stone and I actually thank Cameron at the end here, which is nice. And again, it's kind of as he did then and still does now, always the major respect for him and it feels like they owe everything to Cameron for joining the band at this time and getting them to write the ship when they did so they're very very thankful for his presence and again still to this day they can't be more appreciative of him Alive is gonna finish off the first encore then we're gonna end one more but I like little ads here there's some different little things about this performance that make it special the first one is just a small one is there something wrong she said ah not anymore so it's figuring out ways to kind of add that sarcasm into that line which would become the of course it is so then alive in the solo gets taken down a notch never heard this before i don't think this has ever happened on any other version i will check with the chronologies and everything like that but ed starts to improv some lyrics on this Oh, 
I was thinking like it was maybe a song of some kind. Like it, it starts up. He says, "Sometimes I wonder. This night is a wonder." It feels like he's kind of like trailing off. So it, I do think it's an improv. I did try to look up the lyrics and couldn't find anything. But yeah, it's so weird to hear an improv on a live. It's very very cool. Yeah, I I appreciate this because it's not something that they ever do. Really, you have to go into this show from 1998 to find it, which is kind of deep in a way. But, you know, it's kind of like that Bruce Springsteen moment where at the end of the show, he kind of like sort of stops a song, but it's still like the beat that progresses. But he goes to every single one of the band is like, right on there, that's Stevie Van Zandt. And like, he'll go off and do a little lick or something. And I think they, they've kind of done an introduction in Rockin' in the Free World a couple of times. But this felt like, okay, really take it down and do something different. But it, again, it felt more like Pearl Jam and less Bruce-like to kind of make it different. And it wasn't anything that was like pandering or wasn't anything that was sort of going around the horn and introducing, but it it worked really well. It's something that if they tried it again now, I think people would be like, whoa, what was that? Maybe after the first time, the second time they might be like, very cool, very cool connecting with the crowd moment. And evidently this is just crazy on stage. Ed hitting himself in the mouth of the microphone, pouring wine on the crowd, running up to the video screen, like... Yeah, just evidently a crazy, crazy things on stage. At the end, it says, you know, Jeff's bouncing a ball off the stage, which he'd been playing with. So just a good time all around on stage. All right. The quick encore, too. It's just light better here. But Ed says, thanks for listening. Thanks for the love. Thanks for the joint. Don't know how literal that is, but I think he kind of means place. We'll see all of you tomorrow. When I was in Chicago growing up and I used to see these bumper stickers that said Escape to Wisconsin. So one day, it was really funny. I was waiting at a bus stop to get to the CTA, to get to the L, on and on and on. He kind of goes through the whole transit system of Chicago and says, I see this dark blue Ford Pinto had a bumper sticker that said, Escape from Wisconsin. And it says, there was one person who made it. So that was kind of fun. That was a, a fun little gag and fun little joke for the crowd there, local pandering a little bit but we're gonna get another tribute to stevie ray vaughn which mike leads us off with Ledbetter. what'd you think of this this is very very intent for mike and he does have a pretty special moment at the end yeah another one kind of like better man that was just starting to ramp up in the live catalog and really find a nice place and you know find its spot there there was a long break after live too i'm not sure if like this was a planned encore too or if they just were in the mood and went for it but yeah it's a nice version yeah so we're gonna get into the tag of this which is a Jimi hendrix song called machine gun i believe this is one and done in their history which is crazy i i, I had never known that they had done this before that's why we like doing the shows that nobody else really talks about because it gets us to be like hey wow they had kind of a break during a live and they did a different non little wing tag off a of lead better it kind of gets us familiar with this stuff where if we remember this in five years from now we can bring it up in conversation but we're going to go back to javier on this he wanted to talk a little bit about what he was doing just a very classic vibe that was happening at the end of Yellow Ledbetter. He's going to talk about that right now. Hopefully I didn't blow his cover, but let's talk a little Jimmy. 
This is Mike Payne tribute to the mighty Jimi Hendrix. If you have not ever heard the song Machine Gun, please do yourself a favor and go listen to it right now. You will find thousands of videos on YouTube, thousands of pedals trying to recreate that tone. It's uh, one of the most sought after kind of like guitar tones ever, I will say. A little history here. This is a prime example of like why Jimi Hendrix was kind of like this breakthrough artist. His setup was very simple, but during those days, the approach that he was taking, it was very new. Like nobody thought in running a Fender Strat through a fuss pedal around that time. That was like crazy, you're a lunatic, but he did it and it worked quite well. So Hendrix at that point, he was using a Wawa pedal, an Arbiter fuss face and a Univive pedal. If the name Univive rings a bell to you, it is because the guys that we talk about every single week is because they're heavy users of the Univive. The Univive pedal has different settings. You can make the pulsation quicker or slower, but in this case, the pulsation goes a little slower. So it's gonna create this very watery kind of wavy form that it pushes the amp to get this majestic tone and Mike Pate's tribute to this wonderful expression of music that it was released in 1970. All right. Thanks once again. Good stuff as always. Can't wait to hear what Javier has to say during the Mansfield shows. That's going to be pretty exciting. Before we can get to that, we got to pick three stars of this show, and we also got to do a rating, so we'll do all that right now. I'm going to say that moment number three, I'm going to put Animal in there because I thought that Animal just had that intensity and took some great momentum. I know that Mike didn't really have his best solo or solo at all that you were able to hear from it, but it definitely was the definitive sort of sound for what this show was. And number two, I will go black with number two. And I'm going to go with alive for number one because that was really unique there okay all mine are going to be from kind of one part i'm going to go i got number three hail hail number two and black number one okay that means it's time to rate this thing as we mentioned in the early part of the show that we don't have any video a lot of the reviews from this said that the band was in a very good mood and that's just something that it just doesn't transfer over when you only have a bootleg, especially a non-official bootleg that you have to go off of. This was a pretty fair bootleg. I think from Mike's side and Jeff's side, it was a little low, but it's nothing that you couldn't work off of. But yeah, I think that there was maybe a disconnect between what the show actually was and what we heard. And while there were some good performances, there was a lot of just things that were just there. And yeah, I don't want to make that a put down, but like it kind of like hit sort of the average spots for Pearl Jam. But I think the best I can do for this one is a seven. I think I'm with you. Like the show, it doesn't have a lot of the big moments. And you look at the set list and it feels like it should. There are some things that you look at that like, oh, that should be a nice moment, but it's just not. It's A lot of it is technical issues, which they can't help, but I think there's a lot of stuff here that's lacking. I mean, we weren't there, obviously, so I take this with a grain of salt, but I'm going to give this one a six. Probably won't go back to it. All right. That's very uncommon for shows to get a six. I don't remember the last time I gave something lower than a seven. 
which means I probably did it last week, but who the hell knows? Who the hell's counting and paying attention to that? Bristow, Bristow 2010. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, that wasn't last week, but that was recent enough. Yeah, I, I can see why I gave that a six and a half. But we can put this all on the back burner now. We'll get back to 1998 with some really good stuff like Birmingham and Pittsburgh and Toronto. All three of those shows, which are great in their own way. We'll get to those in August, but we are going to spend the next three weeks in heaven here covering 90 or so different songs, some legendary, legendary shows. The next week, we kick it all off with Mansfield number one. How are you feeling about this? How are you feeling going into this? What are you most excited for? Well, I'm a little hesitant because these are the shows where he disses Atlanta and the crowd. So we're going to have to probably going to have to dock some points for that. I think that's on night three, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Oh, are you not going to give night three a 10, John? We will see. I haven't listened to it in a long time. We're going to go into it with an open mind. Yeah, this will be very interesting. Can't wait to do it for the next three weeks. So hopefully you guys are ready. Definitely listen to the shows before listening to the pod, because that will give you a greater sense of what's all happening. And yeah, to listen to all these in total, I believe it's like seven and a half hours or something like that. But you guys all have the time. You guys can do it. If we can do it, you can do it, right? Yeah. You got this. You got this. Listen to all three before we go out and post the pod. And then we'll have the reaction along with whatever your reaction is going to be. And that's always fun. So, all right. With all that being said, the last thing we want to say here is that, Hey, go back on the website and make sure you purchase a shirt and donate to cystic fibrosis foundation. But also if you don't subscribe to the podcast, then make sure you do because that helps us out a real lot. Gets us better algorithm and better chance that other people that are looking for Pearl Jam podcasts get to see this. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, if that's where you listen to your podcast, just make sure they head over and give us a five-star rating if we deserved it. We believe we deserve it. And apparently, I guess... 93 of 95 people think we deserve it too. So I guess if that's saying anything, then hey, help us out a little bit and give us a five-star rating. And also on Apple, you can leave a comment and the comments are really what help the most because people that are looking for something new to listen to, especially with Pearl Jam, they're going to want to read and see what people have to say. And if you say glowing things, then somebody's going to attach on to that and be like, all right, I'm going to look for my shows. I'm going to look for the shows that I want to see what they had to say about that. And that's how we keep building this thing, guys. Once we go out on the road in September, we'll keep building there, too, and we'll keep finding new people. So, all right, that's a nice way to end it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already. Miss you always. Hey. That's appropriate to say when we did a Wisconsin show, right? Big one starts next week. Study up, everybody. We'll see you then. Fuck that song. On to the next one. We're going to let you know what we're attempting to do uh, tonight. Uh, There's kind of a plan, a method. Uh, Since uh, we're playing three shows in your neighborhood... And uh, we've worked up about 
70 songs for this tour. We thought we would... Uh, we'd play three nights without repeating a song. And get to every song. However, we thought we were playing about 70 songs. We're actually, I think we're playing about 105. And the main set is usually about 17. This would put it about 35 songs a night. Yeah. 